Full disclosure, this is Robin Farzad. 57 channels and nothing That is, of course, the boss, Bruce Springsteen, lamenting all the nada on the tube back in 1992. 57 channels and nothing's on. Well, it turns out he was mostly right. It's more like 857 channels and nothing's on. MTV Cribs, Teen Mom Edition, Real Housewives of the Jersey Turnpike. Someone even gave Katherine Heigl a dramatic series. What's going on? <laughs> Cable and satellite bills have increased at more than twice the rate of inflation over 20 years. But now, hope for an unbundling from this tyranny. To explore this riveting prospect, we're joined by John McDooling, who covers media content and distribution, among 57 other beats at Quartz. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. And in studio, Judy Crenshaw, professor at the VCU Robertson School of Media and Culture. She's surrounded by a bunch of uh, millennials who tell her we don't even know what a TV is, ma'am. Uh, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. John, we're writing about, we're covering this real time, uh, and, and this week there's all this news out of um, uh, the big uh, electronics conference in Vegas that satellite TV provider Dish came out and said that they're going to offer a live and on-demand video streaming service that includes ESPN, that, that very pricey bit of the cable bundle, all for $20 a month. And so everybody's suddenly talking about, you know, we're closer to this holy grail of a la carte cable. You know, bring your own appliance, cut out the cable company, and just pay for what you want. How, how much closer are we? Well, I think this new service for, from Dish has the potential to be a game changer, sorry to use a, a pun, but... Um, whether that plays out remains to be seen. A couple of years ago, um, you know, cord cutters couldn't have dreamed of being able to access ESPN on its own for, for just $20 um, a month. Uh, ESPN is obviously the most widely distributed and most watched cable network in America. I think it's available in about 95, or it's present in about 95 million homes in the country. They have rights to a tremendous amount of sporting content, um, obviously Monday Night Football. Um, last week alone, they had the two most watched programs in the history of cable TV in the U.S., which are the two college football uh, playoffs, the first ever playoffs. Um, so the, it's tremendously valuable content, and it's also content that, for the most part, um, needs to be watched live. Which makes it D DVR resistant, and you can ask advertisers for much more money. Exactly. And hence, we see the Los Angeles Clippers sold for $2 billion because the cable companies love to snap up these multi-decade TV rights. Uh, because, again, it seems to be DVR resistant. Exactly. And up until now, the only way to access ESPN has been to take out a quite expensive cable subscription, which typically costs you know, um, 90 to $120 and upwards of that now with an easier payment method, particularly for millennials, um, you know, People may be inclined to to no longer take out the, those extremely expensive and annoying packages. Now, Professor Crenshaw, talk about millennials because you remember I was guest lecturing at your class on on social media. It was a couple months back, and here I am. You know, I thought I was a young, hip <laughs> renegade of funk, and uh, I wanted to break the bread with your with your class of twenty year olds, twenty one year olds. And I was like, What do you What do you kids watch on TV? And they're like, We well, don't know what a TV is. They glossed over a bit uh, when, yeah, no, when pulled, you mentioned TV. I pulled all all the students in your class. Were there about 25, 25 students or so? And then two raised their hand and said, we have TVs. One inherited it with an apartment she's renting. Right. Exactly. Uh, 
I got to tell you, the young people that I interact with on a daily basis, they don't have any time for TV. They don't want to mess with TV. They could care less about watching a sporting event unless it's in a bar with a ton of their friends uh, or unless it's a, a part of a big party that they attend and that's good enough for them. They they really are not interested in any big cable package that has anything to do with um you know, being all about some big ESPN. They're not, you're telling me they're not watching Jackass Teen Mom Edition. <laughs> well, they'll watch a couple clips of it that are tweeted out, you know, a few highlights here and there. Mm-hmm. But no, you know, they don't sit around and watch anything from start to finish for a solid 30 minutes. And so to your mind, is that what's what's forcing the cable company's hands? Because for decades, and, and you know, John, you can, you can jump in, um, they've said that we were the ones who went out there and did literally the heavy lifting. We made these massive... Massive, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars investment on building out the pipe. Uh, when when technology would increase, we have to send the cable guy over. Uh, ESPN, which is owned by uh, Disney, they have us over a barrel because they increase the the cost of carriage every year by a ridiculous amount, and we have no choice but to pass that on to customers. Is this really the tipping point? The fact that millennials are out there just tuning out anyway? Well, I think it's interesting. The U.S has one of the highest cable penetration rates in the world. A lot of other countries, there's more content available on, on free-to-air TV. At the moment, the, the big content companies, HBO said this as well, ESPN and, and Dish as well, the, the, I think it's estimated that there's somewhere between 10 and 15 million households now in the US that don't have cable at all, and that number is growing rapidly. So these companies obviously want to... to they're not getting any money from those people at the moment, which is typically millennials, and for the future of their, for their businesses to survive into the future, they need to figure out a way to, to access these, these and get these people to pay for, for their content. And certainly the executive edition unveiling this yesterday certainly, you know, dropped that that word millennial several times in the release. And I think you hit on it, Rob, and it's, it's where is the tipping point? I think that's that's kind of what has to be figured out because you've got really right now, it seems to me, no one really willing to make any trade-offs. <laughs> you know, you know you, you, everyone's sort of a bit stuck in where they are, but, but John's exactly right. I, I think fewer and fewer young people, and, and you don't even need to be stuck on the age thing here. I mean, you've got people, you know, inching into their 40s and 50s who don't really see the need for a huge cable package either because there's too many ways to work around this. I mean, there's ways to watch uh, and download series television that's absolutely fantastic. You know, you don't have to have a cable package to do that. Better and better television is available off cable, off network t- TV. So I, I think uh, that tipping point that you spoke of, that's something that's, that uh, is going to be a bit of a wrestle, but uh, they're going to have to get there in order to uh, satisfy the consumer, in order to have the cable companies, you know, continue to make money for themselves, for their shareholders, et cetera. But, but consumers, and particularly millennials, just aren't going to, they're not going to buy into it. Now, John, structurally, technologically speaking, aren't we still beholden to the internet service provider, be it the cable company or Verizon Fios, or maybe you're in a slower region and you have AT&T's 
um, broadband offering, you're still dependent on them for the pipes that come to your house that then uh, broadcast whatever strength Wi-Fi. So can't they um, ultimately hold you up? Like I, I, I noticed some of that friction last year. Was it between Verizon and Netflix? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So there's a couple of points to make here. The first is that, that most people, in order to do this, if you want to cut the cord, you still need a broadband subscription. And most people in America get their broadband from the cable companies, the same cable companies that they're getting rid of their video packages from. So in order to, to do this, and if you want to get this DISH service for $20 a month, if you want to get HBO service when it comes out next year, you're probably going to be maintaining um, a relationship, unless you're lucky enough to live in an area where Fios has rolled out or where, where, where there is genuine competition um, with the, the telcos. Um, either AT&T or, or Verizon, you're, you're probably going to have to maintain a billing relationship with your cable company. And how that plays out remains to be seen. Um, whether whether they continue to you know to try and hold on to you as a video customer by offering you cheaper packages remains to be seen. But they did try to throttle. I mean, when somebody like a Netflix comes in, and, and there was a big tipping point moment with Netflix, was it a year or two years ago, with House of Cards that everybody was talking about. It's similarly Orange is the New Black, where um, you have uh, someone out of left field, which was looked at as a kind of a DVD library originally as a distributor, going whole hog into investing in, in really polished, desirable content that you can binge watch. And when these episodes would be put out, 12 or 13 at a time, everybody would binge on that, on, on that experience and the broadband would be sucked up. And in their defense... You know, the Comcasts and Verizons and charters of the world would say that we're being we're being overextended at this point. We have to have a fast lane and a slow lane. And this kind of ran afoul of, of, of all manner of net neutrality critics. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's obviously um, it's a fairly uh, bitter dispute in Washington at the moment, which is probably not going to be resolved for a while. It's a bit of philosophical dispute about the future of the Internet and it's more... Uh, yeah, as more content companies try to go direct to consumer, um, I'd expect to hear more about this um, from from lawmakers. Judy, tell me what else you've learned from your students in terms of media consumption. Um, uh, you know where where the trends are headed. I was really struck. Again, these guys were born when I was a freshman <laughs> in college. You know, twenty one years ago, and. Uh, the way they just looked at me like the complete moron that I was that I even talked about television. This has entered a whole new frontier right now. It's not just be, bring your own device, be it a, a tablet or a phablet or a laptop, but uh, all of these guys have some form of Apple TV or Roku or now you know M the Amazon streaming fob. Um, this is really where the, the desired demo is. It's not, it's not kind of the vestigial audience that the, the networks are still investing in. Well, I think where they are, and, and no matter what you rattle off, is they're, they're willing to just give anything a shot. They hop on, they hop off, um, and they try anything out for whatever their purposes are, when they want it, where they want it, and also sort of tailored to what their interests are at the time. And they're uh, it, for for. I'm not saying it's either good or bad, really, but it really speaks, I think, to uh, the whole way the culture is moving and the way technology is moving also in terms of of just data collection. They're very used to having things tailored to them. 
tailored to their taste, tailored to what job they're looking for, tailored to uh, what they do not want to see, what they do want to see, et cetera. So um, whatever device they're on, uh, however, take, for instance, how they get their news. They are very much used to it being uh, an app or a stream that is only what they want to hear and listen to and how they want to consume it. So uh, brand new video uh, apps or, or like NP, uh, NPR One, something that they can, can immediately tailor to the stories that they want to hear mm. and be able to listen to on the go. It'll give them some breaking news, you know, or news on the hour, but also they can filter out if they don't want to hear anything about uh, science, then they don't hear it. If they want to hear only politics, world news, technology, that's what will be built into their stream. And I was struck, you know, I think I, I mentioned it to him, but how many of them were moved to action by that John Oliver diatribe on his show, which, you know, John, you might remember this too. He came out uh, and, and explained net neutrality and he put it in really stark terms. And all the people who were watching this 15, 16 minute diatribe soliloquy on Facebook Monday morning after it appeared. And suddenly the FCC is getting all of these letters and angry phone calls. I, I heard from my my friends at the newswires and um, you know the the network nightly programs and and public radio people who many of whom you know they did like five part series on the hazards of net neutrality, they never got through to that audience the way HBO knew how to do it by cutting out this clip which was really custom tailored to a language that that demographic spoke. You know you mix news and humor and it's suddenly the most uptrended thing on Facebook on Monday morning and and. You know, it seems like HBO speaks that language, even though HBO is a product of Time Warner, which had Time Warner cable. It's an old media conglomerate. It seems to be, John, uh, you know, a, a, a concept out there that gets that it needs to innovate or die. Yeah, absolutely. I think the tremendous success of, of John, John Oliver's HBO show is a testament to that. And the fact that they widely distributed those clips uh, on YouTube and on Facebook, which would have been also would have been unheard of in a previous era, um, media companies would have wanted people to pay for to see that kind of thing. Um, I think John, that are you shocked clever. that are you shocked that a Brit has has innovated like that? I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually Australian, so. Uh, oh no! So no, that's <laughs> terrible. Shame on me. I no, missed it. Uh, um, yeah, God I mean, save the Queen. God save the Queen. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I think it was, I think HBO was very clever with what they did with with that program, and and I think um, and I think. Hey, but wait, but on, you know HBO. I used to I used to want to steal cable boxes when I was in uh, junior high. You know, my parents wouldn't pay for that tier. You know, the HBO Showtime tier and stuff. And now, yeah. you know, we were talking about this beforehand. They don't care if you share your HBO Go password, or Showtime doesn't seem to care if you you know you want to watch Homeland on your password. To a certain extent, Comcast and the others try to control the experience that they say if you have the cable package, you can log into our portal and see any of your content on the go. But that's that's perilously hard to to hold on to when that content you know Judy can can be gotten through various different portals. Oh, once again, no millennial has a HBO you know, a legitimate HBO <laughs> package, but they all have HBO Go passwords and they all watch every single, you know, episode. Have you bummed the password off your student? Uh, Be honest. <laughs> off of, well, actually not off one of my students, but one of my children. I have 
You are such a <laughs> renegade. You have you have two children in college. Two in college, one about to go. Yeah. Or actually, one is graduated. I can't even keep track of them. But I wanted to make a point about the humor. It's, and actually, HBO is still a bit of a dinosaur in that regard. Who's really got it are people like Fusion and Vox because they uh, have the adequate dose of humor in almost everything they're putting out, even the straight-up news stories. Uh, they have satire and, uh, the, you know, they have the the uh, underpinnings of humor in the headlines of even straight up news stories. And if you follow uh, Fusion News on Twitter, and, uh, and, and those are actually more the news sources that, that younger people are following and getting their news from, you will pick up very quickly that um, the, the, the fact that young people now get a huge amount of their actual news from satirical news content is right there in plain view on um, uh, platforms and sources like Fusion. And, and you know, full Box. disclosure, I, I, I conceived of this show. I tried to tried to make it funny and tried to I- infuse it with a, a certain irreverence and everything. But I think what makes me, you know, in a moment of self-indulgence, what makes me appealing to this fabled millennial listener is not that I am humorous per se, but that I I think I'm funny and maybe they can get a laugh or two out of that. But I don't know if that comes across in the medium. But uh, full disclosure, we're talking about the potential great unbundling of cables tyranny over the country. Stay with us. Full disclosure, we're talking to John McDooling, who's a correspondent at the digitally native, uh, really awesome business website, Quartz. Um, I read it daily. I read it religiously. Uh, There's some pretty amazing curation that these guys get. Um, And I think it's important to talk to a digital native product because we're talking about uh, big old media companies trying to look like they were born in the digital age. And in studio, Judy Crenshaw, venerable professor of media and culture at Virginia Commonwealth University. John, I had a question about corporate structure. And, you know, we remember the huge acquisition, uh, the, the most disastrous merger in history was AOL Time Warner, which was supposed to bring together the fabled fat pipes of broadband with all manner of content. You know, Warner Brothers Studios, CNN, CNN and, you know, Time Inc., the publishing shop that did magazines, and that was a disaster. And the Time Warner that we see today is a pure play media company. It's hived off its cable arm. It has hived off its magazine arm. And now it has Time Warner. It has Turner. Um, it, you know, it has HBO, which is its crown jewel. But at the same time, we see a company like Comcast, which is the biggest cable company in the country, but also has NBC Universal and an enormous sports franchise. Where is the pendulum kind of swung to right now? Is content king? Is distribution king? Is there evidence that you know you're going to get the best negotiating power if you have both? I think content is Bill Gates' famous adage. I think it was Bill Gates that said it. Content is still king, and I think the best example of that was last year when 21st Century Fox, uh, Rupert Murdoch's um, media conglomerate, attempted to to buy uh, Time Water for for 80 billion dollars. Um, I just think distribution is is still a, a valuable business, but it's a very different business to to content. And we're seeing the two um, separate. I think cable companies are becoming um, 
they're basically becoming broadband businesses. They're basically becoming infrastructure businesses. They they own pipes. Um, they distribute data, and it remains a lucrative business largely due to the the market structure in the U.S. They're basically a collection of of, uh, of regional monopolies and um, the two biggest distribution, you know, internet distribution, uh, two of the biggest in- internet distribution companies in the U.S. are trying to merge. Um, That's Comcast and Time Warner Cable. Yeah, and uh, most sort of analysts on Wall Street expect that deal to go through, despite the fact that there's been a lot, a lot of anger about it. We won't know for, for a few more months um, towards the middle of, of the year what happens on that front. But I think... Um, I think it's just, investors just want cleaner corporate structures these days. I guess Comcast is is the big exception to that. Now we did see, by the way, you know, by way of footnote, about 11 years ago, I believe Comcast made an abortive offer to take out Disney, uh, which would have brought ESPN, which was the negotiating crown jewel, uh, and Disney into the Comcast empire. Instead, ultimately, Comcast took NBC Universal off General Electric's hands. Um, you know, I I, I wonder. Uh, if, if kind of their hand is held to the fire, Comcast, and, and that'd be kind of a moment of truth, if the regulators say, we'll let you, uh, you know, fatten up on the, on the distribution side if you give up your, you know, your firstborn content child in NBC Universal, if they would do that. There seems to be a movement afoot. You know, even Time Warner is getting pressure to offload its underperforming uh, uh, CNN unit. I th- yeah, I think, it, I, I think it's highly unlikely that that, that, that will happen. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't. I don't think that that will happen with Comcast. I think. Um, I think NBC Universal is a good business for them. They've invested heavily in it, uh, and I just don't see the current management wanting wanting to get rid of rid of that business. And um, as things stand, Judy, you know, David, David Carr of the New York Times has written this is a golden age of content. Uh, if you think about, but it comes with its its perils too. Like, in addition to a twenty thousand piece word in the New Yorker that you've been reading, meaning to read, everybody's telling you that you need to see Orange Is the New Black. Uh, those who missed Breaking Bad, who can binge on it, you know, on Netflix. Uh, oh, you need to see this on HBO. You need to catch John Oliver's show. Suddenly, there's this huge bull market of great content. But if you look at the cable tier, like I was saying at the top of the show. There's just a lot of really cheap autoplay programming there, reality programming, stuff that's kind of plug and play. You can kind of see the template, whether you put, you know, duck hunters or angry housewives into it. Um, and so there's this bifurcation of uh, some people going really upstream with amazing content and the rest of us who are kind of, you know, the, the networks seem to be going for the lowest common denominator or things that that lend themselves to, you know, mass production. Um where is that causing kind of a discrimination in how people consume media? It's obviously a dis- it's a discretionary expense when you talk about millennials thinking that if I am going to pay for it, I'm really going to pay for it on my own terms. Well, it it speaks to, you know, keeping things bundled that uh, you're going to be able to have some of those uh, lowest common denominator sort of shows stick around. Be- and, and But you also, that also means that you have some of the little guys, some diversity, be able to stick around. I mean, I, I think I, I don't... But then that's content affirmative action, really. That's what it is. Right, because you don't want the little guy to just automatically drop off the map because he can't, you know, not enough people buy that in an a la carte situation. And that's the thing when I talk about, you know, everybody's got to be able to 
uh, give a little bit because if you go to a strictly a la carte menu and only the strongest survive, only the very best content gets bought in a buffet sort of situation. You know, you've got your buffet plate and you're going down the line and people are only choosing Breaking Bad and Orange is the New Black. Well, what happens to those little gems that aren't quite, you know, that strong? They don't have a machine behind them, but they might have a little diversity. They might have a little quirkiness and you don't want them to just drop off the map. Now, unfortunately, you're going to also get a lot of uh, dregginess and a lot of the other, you know, not so great content along with it. That is what some people would say would be a benefit of some bundling. Yes, you know, you're going to have 200 channels you don't want. You're going to have QVC, but uh, that means a lot of weaker players are going to survive that otherwise would have no chance in hell of, you know, surviving an a la carte sort of situation. And it, it would make it even harder uh, in the entertainment world, if only the very top. It, it's been it's been proven that, that in terms of behavior and sort of consumption behavior, uh, viewers, especially younger people, only stick with like what five to ten channels, five to ten really solid sort of uh, shows. So, you know, they're not. It's going to be harder and harder to pay talent, harder and harder to produce. Uh, great content. So you don't want to make it. You don't want to make it that much harder. But we do talk about the cost spiraling out of control here. It's not uncommon to see a hundred and fifty, hundred and sixty dollar triple pay package. Now that you talk about not just video, but video, internet, internet, which is being tiered. Some heavy users are being throttled, and telephony. And then on top of that, the premium packages you have to pay. And if you want to pay the Netflixes of the world to get access to House of Cards and Orange is the New Black, and then a Hulu premium thing. I mean, John, you you crunch some of the numbers. This can get pretty prohibitive if you try to become one of these pioneers of, of a la carte pricing. I mean, these these dollars add up. That's absolutely right. It, it really comes down to how, how broad or how sort of specific your tastes are. One of the great things the internet has done is it's allowed people to indulge in, in niche tastes. But if you have broad tastes, if you're into sport, if you're into live sport, um, if, you, if you're into Netflix's hit shows, if you really like HBO's programming, um, it, Amazon has original content now. If you end up... It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out, but if you end up subscribing to all of these services, you're actually going to end up not paying that much less than you could end up playing a lot more actually yeah could we could we take a back of the envelope example john i mean when you take that kind of that 64 dollar number i mean the very basic cable package right now is offered across the country you know you could get the basic tier with no frills tv only right at about 65 70 dollars yeah that's, that's, that sounds about right so if you're going to attempt to just go you know start with a data plan work that out for me so yeah um if you assume uh $20 a month for the new dish service, which gets you ESPN, um, around $8 a month for Netflix, around $8 a month for Hulu. Uh, Amazon Prime Instant Video comes as part of... Prime, which is close to $100 a year. Yeah, $100 a year, but that, again, that's about $8 a month as well. Um, if you want CBS's uh, service as well, if you want to get um, CBS's content... Um, I mean, that's the most, most watched linear, old-fashioned broadcast network in the U.S. If you add all of that up, you're getting pretty close to 
dollars. Now you need to get a, a, a broadband s- subscription to do that as well, and that's the, the sort of the um, that's the sort of wild card in this situation. Will the, the distributors be offering discounts on on video content going forward to keep you in the bundle? We, we sort of don't know at this stage. That's that's the key question going forward. So you really have to be a burn your bra hippie type rebel to do something like this, just to thumb your nose at the cable companies, because the numbers, again, the value proposition doesn't really add up. Well, it just not depends. right now. Yeah, not right now. It depends, and again, it depends on your on on how specific your taste. Uh, and it's interesting. Netflix, I mean, maybe Netflix, um, maybe Netflix would have been able to achieve something like that if they'd been able to do a deal with HBO, but that never happened. Um, HBO wanted to maintain its its own business, which is incredibly lucrative for Time Time Warner. But yeah, um, it just it depends how how important these sort of really popular hit shows. Are to you, and how important having everything is to you. If you're if you're comfortable with what Netflix is offering at the moment, um, that you can save a lot of money. But if you want to be watching everything, and if you're a TV addict, and if you also like sport, there's kind of no way around it um, at this stage. But the proof is sort of out there. Millennials seem to be have more more niche tastes. Um, and as Judy mentioned before, like a, a lot of them are prepared and happy to to watch sports in bars and things like that. People, you know, people are uh, sharing passwords is normal. So um, in that sense, there is a way around it. But um, as these millennials get a little bit older, um, it remains to be seen how that, whether that continues. Judy, this, this brings to mind a, a famous uh, New York Times magazine cover uh, from, I believe, the middle of the year 2000, which shows an old television being thrown out of a window, just cracking on a sidewalk. And it was um, a business writer extraordinaire, Michael Lewis, talking about the death of traditional TV, that model. And uh, it didn't happen quite that rapidly. But if you compare the ratings numbers, if you compare the ad outside of sports, if we back out kind of sports, which has seen uh, huge inflation um, in in terms of team values and and broadcast rights values, um, it's just harder to turn a buck in the traditional ad-based model. And if you talk about uh, the world going a la carte for the sake of millennials. What does this suggest for for advertising as a medium on TV? I mean, I watch, I watch House of Cards. I binge on House of Cards, and I don't want to see one single darn ad in that. Well, yeah, I don't even know how to answer that. I mean, the world of of advertising is in mobile and digital advertising, at you know, one hundred and fifty percent. And 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 when you talk about any sort of advertising growth, it, it's all digital. Uh, it's, but even YouTube now is going to let you opt out of ads with a YouTube Prime type thing in the offing. YouTube is obviously owned by Google. It was a master investment for them. You know, you buy it for a couple of billions of dollars, and then it becomes the chief, uh, you know, self-publishing broadcast medium. There are there are content creators uh, that are being bought out for millions of hundreds, some you know, tens of millions of dollars by the big legacy media conglomerates right now. It's showing you how that tide has turned. And again. I just don't see your students um, saying, you know, I'm okay to sit through these interstitial ads or these 30-second ads to watch my content. I want it, and I want it without ads. I want it on my terms, on my device. Well, there, they, there's ways to – okay, number one, they totally ignore the ads that they have to see. Uh, but they subliminally get through. I mean, advertising still works. If it didn't, then you know people would not be paying for it, and things like Facebook advertising would not be successful, and it is. So you know, 
millennials say that they ignore advertising and they don't attend to it. But when it comes down to a purchasing decision, they still have a subliminal idea in their head of a picture that has flashed before him and them and they will make a purchasing decision based on that. So statistics, there, there are statistics that bear that out. Um, and you know, in terms of the the machinery that people are are really wanting to build in their systems, like Verizon, the Verizon and AOL uh, possibility that they are after AOL's digital advertising uh, savvy. That is all their app. I mean, not maybe all their digital after, advertising. <laughs> digital advertising, however, is still penny ante, John. When you think about it, you know the the nickels versus the dollars of of traditional uh, you know media conglomerate advertising on the big tube. Yes, but it's growing a lot faster. Um, so one of the things, so advertisers still gravitate towards TV when they want scale, but it, but what a lot of advertisers want now is is to be targeted and demographic to target specific demographics and. Digital advertising um, offers that, um, and that's why we're at the beginning of a shift in advertising dollars away from more traditional uh, mediums into into digital, uh, particularly digital video. And that's uh, that's a reason, yeah, why Verizon has been linked with a possible approach for AOL, which is kind of ironic when you think that AOL and Time Warner, um, in that disastrous deal. Uh, you know, back at the turn of the millennium. Yeah, come to think of it now, but it, it seems like this is causing a whole new route of thinking, right? Their 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 satellite mergers being discovered. After all, this news about the unbundling news comes out of Dish, uh, which it's very tough to be a satellite company right now. You see, uh, Comcast is really has you know dominant market share in terms of fat pipes. It wants to buy out the next big fat pipe company, Charter, which was another one, was also bidding for Time Warner Cable. People have kind of forgot about satellite. No one talks about DSL anymore. Verizon had to make the very difficult decision to go out and spend north of fifteen billion dollars on fiber optic lines. And again, not every American gets the same quality of broadband to her door. It's dependent on the natural monopoly of cable. So the interesting thing here is to what extent uh, the internet experience over a generic Wi-Fi can disrupt that entire um, ecosystem, which after all took 50 or 60 years to build. Well, yes, I think, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think it's going to happen a lot uh, exponentially quicker than 50 or, or 60 years. And the, and um, what John mentioned about targeted advertising, once again, is exponentially more successful. So you're going to get there, you know, so much uh, more quickly. The advertising dollars that are being spent are just much more effectively uh, being applied. So instead of a, a a TV ad on any given program that's just being thrown out there against a wall, you know, they are very specifically hitting the right consumers. What's interesting to me, and I think where you're really going to see this accelerated is, for instance, in the 2016 um, presidential campaign, when they start hitting these really specific media markets, 
uh, and specifically thinking about millennials, they are really going to start hitting um, media outlets like Fusion. They can really, really target door knocks. They can target people's mobile phones. They're going to go back to text messaging, uh, every manner of And they're of just going to tick off millennials <laughs> giving up altogether. No, you know, it's going to go back to one-on-one communication because they are going to know exactly one-on-one who they are talking to. And they're going to know exactly one-on-one who's swayable. They're going to know exactly one-on-one who, you know, who they can get the vote of and who they, you know, might as well not bother because of being able uh, to collect big data, because of tracking their online behavior, because of tracking their e-commerce sort of decisions. So um, it, it, it sort of goes back to targeting the advertising. But uh, anyway, I don't know how I got off on that tangent, but it's, <laughs> it's really interesting to me how the targeted advertising, targeted behavior of um, viewership, you know, is is really going to accelerate the process, I think. Now, hold that thought. Uh, full disclosure, we're talking the great big bad unbundling of 2015 or 2022 or whenever it's going to happen. Um, it might well happen. Stay with us. Full disclosure, John McDooling, talk about the 50-ton elephant in the room in Google, which uh, is a rather recent uh, combatant in this giant media war. I mean, nobody knew what Google was 15 years ago, and suddenly it is the biggest um, you know, digital advertising company in the world. It has YouTube, which is the biggest digital video distribution means in the world. Um, it knows where all these trends are headed in terms of analytics. Uh, it has... Uh, an investment in in very fast, uh, you know, citywide Wi-Fi and fiber optics in places like Austin, which has to terrify the likes of AT and T and Verizon and Comcast because you have someone that doesn't play by the traditional, um, you know, duopoly rules. Uh, where do you see them kind of weighing in on this battle? Yeah, well, Google hasn't made any steps into aside from YouTube, I guess, which is in a sense content. They haven't really got into the content game yet. They're certainly not commissioning shows or anything like that so it's going to be interesting to see what what they do and obviously i think uh, google fiber the, the the broadband product that they've rolled out in selected cities around america has given um, a huge sort of wake-up call to the existing cable companies who are all in those areas rapidly um, rushing to to upgrade their networks to be able to compete with this tremendously fast and high-performance um, fiber network, which is a which is a tremendous thing for for consumers. And that is the ultimate tool in unbundling. If a if a, a third party or an exogenous player were to come in that didn't abide by the old media conglomerate rooms and said, you know, we can economically offer you a thirty-dollar very high-quality uh, Wi-Fi or fiber connection, you can then use that as your baseline, right, John, to build on on the various different um, a la carte content options you want. Absolutely. The problem is that in most places it's not economic for anyone to do that. Um, at, the, at the moment, my impression is that Google Fiber is sort of a, a trial. It's one of the sort of projects that the companies. You know, it's also it's also it's not economic. You know. It's also I'm sorry. It's also not economic for Amazon to do whatever the heck it's doing, and it's also investing in in in, in glossy shows and series. It seems like everybody kind of wants a. 
you know, wildcat opportunity in this. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, look, everyone's trying to get into the original content game. Even Yahoo's now, um, Rissa Meyer's uh, commissioned some comedies that are going to come out later this year, which is which is interesting. So, yeah, everyone everyone's trying to figure out where this whole thing is headed. No one knows. And these companies have lots of money at stake. Uh, so everyone's putting bets out there and hoping hoping that they pay off. It's interesting, Judy. There's these estimates. I think Nicholas Carlson wrote this great book about Marissa Mayer's term at Yahoo. There are some estimates that she paid Katie Couric upward of four or five million dollars a year to have a digital native broadcast. You know, the Katie Couric show, which kind of flopped on TV. You know, after it didn't work out for her on the evening news on CBS. Um, there are also estimates. Activist investors will tell you that Yahoo's content business has a negative value. It's all about their investment in Alibaba. And so you you do see this, this idea that content is king in certain circles where the content is desired, like what Netflix and HBO have, HBO being a Time Warner asset. But then in other circles, especially if you know digital native, it's very hard to command the values to actually get people to pay for content still to this day when there's so much free content on places like YouTube and Hulu. Exactly. I mean, you have to do it right. And what is that secret sauce? You know, how do you do it? I mean, in that in that example, where is that? No, Nobody shares uh, their content. They just haven't found the right mix, no matter what investment was made, no matter what new CEO was brought in, no matter, you know, uh, what... Uh, t- other hip new company they acquired in, in terms of, you know, getting Tumblr under their belt in, in that example. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's just so much competition out there and it moves so fast. And what I said at the top of the show, the attention span of the largest chunk of people that you have consuming media uh, is so very fleeting that it's a risky business uh, to to really guess and put too much uh, stock into one way or the other. But um, it seems when it hits, it hits big. So, you know. Well, John, I think, you, you know, you sound like a young guy to me. And I was, uh, you know, I was a... Uh... I was a cub reporter during the, uh, the great telecom bubble of uh, 99 and 2000. <laughs> And uh, where I think, you know, collectively we, we blew two, three trillion dollars on abortive fiber optic, uh, you know, companies and companies that way overexpanded, imagining this dream way too soon in a certain way. Wall Street threw all sorts of cheap debt financing at them. Um, and it was part of the, the broader Internet and tech bubble. Uh, but I remember there was this ad for Quest, which was the big fiber optic name. Uh, that uh, this guy checks into a dusty hotel out west, and there's this sultry hotel attendant, and uh, he's like, "You got this, you got this, you got minibar." And then what? What? What about TV? She goes, "Every movie ever made, anytime, anywhere, on one channel." You know, and I was like, "Wow, this is where we're headed—the fiber optic future." So to bring that back to the here and now in 2015, why can't we just go to? individual websites or a search engine that takes us to whatever content we want and the content provider gets paid for it. So why should I care, you know, about anything past the um you know the quality of the, the the pipe that I have into the home. If if there's a small studio that has a film, I should be able to go to their website and be able to download or stream the film. I mean, why why isn't that there yet? I think we may eventually get there, but at the moment it's just that the legacy 
uh, media companies and the, the legacy content owners have too much at stake to move there too quickly. And I think, yeah, I mean, two years ago, if you said that we would this year you'd be able to get ESPN and HBO um, without a full cable subscription for twenty dollars a month for ESPN and probably fifteen twenty dollars for HBO, um, people, you know, just two years ago, people would have said that that is not going to happen for years. Now it's here, you know, and we're still waiting on HBO to confirm details of its packages. But I think things are moving extremely extremely quickly and much faster than anyone expected. But from a long tail perspective, if I hear about a show, if it's something that comes out, you know, suppose it's something that comes out of New Zealand or Australia, and there's a small studio there, why can't I just go to the website and and pay them for that? Or have a a player like a Google facilitate that for me? If the bottleneck is not um, the bandwidth anymore, it's just somebody provisioning the experience, be it, you know, iTunes does that to a certain extent, Apple TV does that to a certain extent, why do we still I mean the problem here is that if I if I hear about something on BBC America and I want to be a cord cutter chances are 9.5 out of 10 that I will not subscribe to BBC America under one of these cord cutting plans but I should still be able to go one off and binge on a series or or see something that has absolutely nothing to do with the way content and distribution have been glued together in this country over 50 years. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's the legacy of the way the whole TV system in the U.S. emerged, and the whole cable um, business emerged in the in the 50s and 60s. Um, but I, I I continue to think that like the you know even a decade ago um, there was no such thing as iTunes. You couldn't download and pay for a show if you wanted to. Um, I think we've come a pretty long way in in recent years, and and I think um, what you can get now. Um, and the amount of content available at your fingertips now is is pretty incredible. It's frustrating to a lot of people the hoops you have to jump through to to get access. Yeah, because even within that telco bubble that we're talking about, there were all these video on demand startups. They had these VOD farms, which you know yeah. you could. It, well, that's what I was going to jump in and say. You know, unfortunately, you know, there's so many illegal ways to access whatever you want to see. And uh, there, especially if you have a Mac instead of a PC, it's it's there's relatively few barriers to see anything. Yeah, but yeah. there are still, you know, as as you guys know, and we're getting into somewhat of the weeds here, but it, I think it illustrates the frustration. I want to see a specific clip from Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live has an agreement with, you know, Yahoo, and so it directs me through a Yahoo page, but certain clips are not up there at all. Uh, and then, you know, things are covered on Hulu but are not covered elsewhere. Some uh, companies, you know, Viacom or Comedy Central are really okay with having their HD content on YouTube for everybody to pick up. And the refers to the program on, on, on TV. It's just such a hodgepodge out there. It's, it's definitely so a hodgepodge. It's definitely hodgepodge, but millennials are totally okay with the hodgepodge because, you know, they'll, they'll search for something – 80%, 85% of the time they'll find it, and if they can't find what they want after a brief period of time, they'll get over it. And they'll they'll search again in a week if they're that hot on the trail, and uh, they'll forget about it or move on to something else. John, what do you say? Yeah, I think that's right. And again, just coming back to, to John Oliver's show on HBO, and HBO in general, just their the sort of amazing track record, the success of that show owes itself to the fact that the that HBO put it out there. They like 
specifically tailored those clips for YouTube and Facebook, and it was perfect for the millennial age, and it had such a big um, impact on people. I think that points to to what content companies should be doing if they want if they want to thrive and survive in this sort of new brave new world. John, talk about talk about the networks because we see CBS Digital now, you know, CBS News Network. These things that are going straight to digital uh, that have kind of quirkier content. If if we are getting closer to an unbundled a la carte world, uh, increasingly are the um, you know straight to digital Twitter centric products going to be all that more important? I think they are, and I think you've got, you've got to remember that coming back to live sports, which is so important, um, a lot of that is still. Um, it, by law, is still on the broadcast networks like the Super Bowl, which will, be the, which will surely be the top-rated show this year. I think it's on NBC this year. You have to have NBC to be able to watch that. You either, which means you either need a, a, a an old-fashioned antenna, or you need a cable subscription. Um, it's the same with every week with the NFL. Um, if you want to watch the NFL, those the, except for Monday nights, which are on ESPN, all those games, um, whether in market or out market, are on on. Uh, broadcast TV, unless you get um, unless you get NFL Sunday ticket through Direct TV. Um, so it's largely the same with baseball. Um, there's a lot of sports content out there that you that is still on old-fashioned TV, and that's why the the, the value of that content just continues to grow. But in, in terms of their dramatic content, you're absolutely right. I think you the, the networks need to embrace. Uh, embrace the internet and embrace new sort of distribution models. You know, in defense of, of uh, the kind of the sports enterprise, broadly speaking here, um, it is rather easy for you if you are really passionate about certain teams to go straight to MLB.com or NBA.com and get that entire package to be able to watch every game. I mean, those who could have been indignant about um, Monday Night Football being lifted uh, off the, you know, the antenna tier and put on the pay tier at ESPN, I, I, th- I think that, that that anger was kind of muted after several decades of being able to watch something without paying uh, for a cable package, uh, I, th- I think people were rather, you know what, this is this is kind of where it's headed. I sure wish there would be that much discussion and passion behind accessing some sort of arts or education programming. Uh, I mean, it's just an aside, but gosh, I know the monetization of sports is unparalleled. Well, but... here's, a, here's a, you know, in, in closing, we have about five minutes or so left. I'm wondering about when all this stuff reaches a kind of an antitrust action tipping point. John. I mean, there's certainly some anti-competitive behavior here. We've seen various blackouts and tiffs between, you know, Time Warner Cable and I don't know if it's Fox or or, or yeah, one of the satellite yeah. companies and this and we you know, and and the the ads the, the most insulting thing is they say, you know, call them and tell them that you want cable choice or, you know, call call the the the, the content company and, and and tell them to stop, you know, holding us over a barrel and it's it's kind of like, you know, it's it's so petty, and it shows how dysfunctional the system is. And is anyone on Capitol Hill going to stand up and say, you know, some of these companies have become too big. Maybe they need to be broken up the way AT&T was broken up in 1983 or 84. John McCain put in a bill last year, did he not? Is he still alive? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it didn't get anywhere, but he put it in. Yeah, I don't see Washington acting on that front because it's it's happening naturally the way the market's going, the influence of of the broadcast network, networks because the, of the fragmentation of audiences is just naturally occurring. But it is an interesting question. I mean, you want to talk about ISP competition. 
Um, and again, the, the cable landscape might well be a natural monopoly. But AT&T, which was broken up, has effectively been reconstituted. You have Southwestern Bell, Bell South, you know, Pac Bell. They're all together. Um, you know, Verizon is a giant. It's it's rolled up a bunch of other players, and now comp, you know these guys are arguing that it's not about the baby bells anymore. It's about cable companies competing with the bells, competing with the Googles of the world who are coming out of left field with fiber optics. Um, you know, at what point does the behavior certainly become anti-competitive or nefarious? Because, you know, in 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 com, you know, Comcast certainly does not skimp on lobbying. It's it spends quite a bit, and so does Verizon. I think they're number one and two, respectively. Um, they, uh, you know, you you look at this as kind of a chess game. If I Comcast is out there uh, investing heavily in NBC Sports as a foil to ESPN, so it can have more bargaining power with other networks, and uh, you know, so ESPN can suddenly push back and say, "Okay, these guys are getting a bigger cut of sports action. We better step back on the price increases that we want." It seems like there's this big. Um, unhindered land grab for um, bargaining chips, whether it's content or distribution. And is 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 anybody paying attention to how anti-competitive it becomes? Because after all, if you know, as you guys point out in courts, if this is increasing at two and a half times the rate of inflation, it seems like wow. Yeah. So on the distribution side, the cable companies would argue that there is enough competition. Firstly, because the cable businesses are all regional monopolies; they're not like Comcast and Time Warner Cable would argue that they don't compete with each other at the moment, so they're not reducing competition. Their networks don't overlap. And the distributors would also argue that there is, in most homes, competition between the two different pipes, the cable pipe and the telco pipe. Um, And it's a highly debatable topic, and it's a bitter issue in Washington, and I expect that to remain that way for a long time. And there's a lot of money at stake and a lot of lobbying that goes on. On the content side, um, I think there is, we're living in a golden age for content, and I think there is um, competition on that front. So I wouldn't expect um, Washington to sort of get involved um, on that side of things. But in, in terms of the future of the internet, um, net neutrality, and, and you know, arguments over concentration on, on, on the distribution side, I expect that to remain a, a hot topic for, for a long time. To come, and of course, um, the FCC, President Obama is, it wants broadband to be reclassified, and the FCC is expected to make a ruling on that next month. So, you know, you can expect in 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 a matter of weeks for the jockeying around that to intensify. Well, you and I know that this is not about President Obama or. Uh, you know, the, 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 the Speaker of the House or the Majority Leader, it's really about John Oliver in the end. You know, our, our, <laughs> our, yeah. our content and distribution self-determination is, is uh, determined by a Brit. Well, uh, thank you so much, uh, Judy and John, for joining us. If 57 channels and nothing's on, so you can listen to us, full disclosure, on SoundCloud, iTunes, at WRIR. Heck, listen to us on CompuServe if you want. We're that platform agnostic. Full disclosure, we'll be back next next week.